0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio chatted with a troop from Detroit that explores the toxic nature of radical politics, heard from experts on global climate change, and chatted with the author of Summer's Hottest Book. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 31st, 2018. I-94 spoke to Ling Ma, the author of the new novel Severance. Ling talked about the process of writing, bad jobs, bad sex, and how not to write sex scenes. I-94 with Jeremy Kitchen, Mike Sack, and Jamie Trecker airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. Speaking, Speaking of
1: jobs, all right. can you tell us a little bit about actually what your process is for writing the book? We haven't even talked about that at all. And that seems like a fairly important thing to get into with an author.
2: Yeah, so this, as I mentioned earlier, it started out as a short story and then as it got bigger and bigger, I, you know, I didn't have any experience writing a novel. I just did not know how to do that. So my mode of attack uh, was just, let me try to write the scenes that are most urgent to me that I know are somehow going to be in this novel in some way. And then maybe magically they'll just kind of come together and I'll write a few transitions here and there. And honestly, that was what happened. But <laughs> I didn't, it was really important for me because, okay, so I wrote the prologue first, but there was sort of a sense of urgency in the prologue, so it was really important to me that I felt excited about writing the scene at hand, and that's why I kind of kept switching things up. I had to go to where the momentum was and, um, in order to write this. Um,
1: So you're saying you're moved around kind of in the linear sense of the book. You wrote different things out of order.
2: Exactly, and I didn't even know what the linear, what the plot was, to be honest, Um, until towards the end I had a better idea.
1: So you 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 started with no plot sense at all. You just had a sense of what the overall feeling of the book was, and then, I guess, the ending sort of revealed itself to you. That.
2: Yep. And you had mentioned earlier um, Joshua Ferris's And Then We Came to the End. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I didn't read the, finish the whole book, but I read like a good first third or first half of it. And it's that uh, first person collective, first person plural voice. And that was my intention in the beginning was to write a short story all in first person plural we, um, what happened was that Candace's voice, there was a voice that kept popping out of this mass. And after a while I understood, okay, this is the narrator who's going to take over the story and this is actually first person singular. Um, but for a while I didn't, I didn't know that, yeah.
1: Did, does most of your writing start with short pieces that you then kind of put together or mm. is this just kind of the first example of this for you?
2: Um, well, this is the longest work that I've done. I think I used to work in, I used to do nonfiction work, sort of, I was sort of a journalist uh, back in the day. And I, the process is very strange because with like a journalism piece, I know what the story is before I begin and I just need to figure out what the emotions are. I need to talk to like the people involved and get a sense of how they felt about it. So it goes from like plot and then to emotion. But with fiction, it's the reverse for me. I start with this emotion and I don't and I try to tether it back to narrative. So it goes emotion and then plot for me. In terms and of what seasons. was
1: the emotion you started this book with?
2: Um, well, there were two emotions. One was complete glee and one and the other was anger which is a very strange juxtaposition like yeah
3: i saw that um an excerpt of the novel won won a prize in 2015 so you've been knocking this thing around for a while was was there an urge more recently to go back and retool a whole bunch of stuff
2: Honestly, I'm so sick of it. I just wanted to, like, <laughs> so I started it in 2012, I want to say, and then, um, you know, it was a little, it was very quick in the beginning, then I had to slow down because I didn't have a job, so I had to figure something out. I got, I was accepted into an MFA program, uprooted my life, moved to Ithaca, New York, and then I, I was, had, like, secured funding for four years, so then I just kept just kept going until I finished it in 2016, the first draft, and it sold that year, but we went through almost a year of edits with my editor, who is great, but she pushed me a lot, which is great too, but it was miserable. (laughs) It was miserable at the time. I just kept saying, aren't we done already? <laughs> and she was like, well, just a little here and there. And then, of course, it would spiral out into like a massive like amount of edits.
4: Was that chapter written first? Or you said you wrote the prologue first. And then did you write the chapter later?
2: Which chapter? The one oh. that won
4: the award. Um. Yes, the um, Grey Wolf Prize. I think it
2: was just the yeah, the Grey Wolf Prize. It was like the first I want to say thir- twenty pages of the novel. Oh, okay. So all of that actually
5: they said a close segment, so I wasn't first. sure. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah.
3: MFA worth it?
2: <laughs> um. So <Great> my <laughs> uh, my advice <laughs> comes from Michael Chabon, who I saw um, speak at the. Chicago Public Library some years ago, and somebody had asked him the same question. And he said, it's only worth it if they give you a lot of money and a lot of time to write. But if you have to go into an MFA, take a bunch of classes, do a ton of teaching, where's your time to write? So that's the approach I took when I applied to MFAs, like just give me the money and give me the time. (laughs) Like, that's really what what I need. Is that what your application said? I think my application said I would be so honored to be accepted <laughs> in Don't Give me the money.
1: And who, who was the editor, by the way, who worked with you on this book?
2: Jenna Johnson at FSG. Okay, She's great. And, and also her um, assistant, Sarah Birmingham, is also fantastic.
1: I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because that's an under... Um, Thought part of the process. Some people mm-hmm. really hate their editors, and some people really enjoy working with an editor. Mm-hmm. You, you said she, you, you know, you were miserable while doing this, but that things uh, would. And, you know, I was miserable working with my editor. By the way, when you know, it wasn't it's not fun for people that write for a living. It's never fun dealing with an editor. Um, but what about her suggestions? Helped you take the novel mm. to a better finished place.
2: So. When this book was being shopped around, there were two editors who were interested. And one editor, and I got a chance to speak with both of them, one of them told me that it was almost done. And then the other one, and this is Jenna, told me, I want to help you restructure this entire thing. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'm a masochist, but I was like, that's who I want. (laughs) That's who I want to go with, because I know she's going to put in a lot of time. And it wasn't that the other editor wasn't good, he was really great, but I guess I wanted someone to push me a little bit more, Um, and she was always dissatisfied, and for some reason that really (laughs) got me, like, excited.
3: (laughs) Did you go through an agent, or were you doing this
1: on your own?
2: I went through an agent, yes.
1: Okay. Okay.
4: Mike's my editor, would just crack up the whole
1: time, (laughs) We have a couple of questions from the audience, and since we're running out of time, we want to, we want to get to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam asks, how do you differentiate between a comforting routine and the routines people end up falling into for work?
2: Mm, that's a great question. <laughs> Can you repeat it again?
1: Sure. How do you differentiate between a comforting routine, this is like being on Jeopardy, isn't it, <laughs> and the routines people end up falling into for work?
2: I think a work routine is actually very comforting. (laughs) Um, I loved, I mean, even though I keep talking about, I don't know, everything I write is about dissatisfactions with work or with the corporation, but I actually really love the routines. Um, But I think the question is, what is the end game? And I think that's what I think Candace knows that for her job the end game isn't really doesn't amount to much. But the question for Candace is why am I still staying even though the end game isn't really there?
1: Yeah, because at one point she it seems to be financial, but I don't actually believe that's true.
2: I think it's partly financial, but partly there's something compelling her to stay there. And I think she does get lulled, very lulled into working but it also has to do with the background. You know, She is an immigrant, there is this imperative for success and maybe that goes a little too far in her case.
1: We've got another question. Corey asks, and I'm glad you put your names on this. Thank you for following directions tonight. Are there any literary aesthetics you found yourself actively working against?
2: I'll talk about sex scenes right here. Um. <laughs> I thought
1: they were
4: well done. Thank you. You could feel the awkwardness. Well, and- one of
2: them Uh, oh wait there are certain curse words i can't say
4: that's correct but
2: (laughs) okay so let me tread carefully here um i find that sex scenes in fiction it's either this everything dissolves into this sort of miasma of like romanticism or it's like straight up graphic and pornographic so it's either making love or it's straight up Effing, if I might that's say that,
4: strange. banging. You <laughs> say <And>, banging.
2: <laughs> but like when I talk to my friends, ninety percent of the sex that they're having is they're just having sex, right? It's not effing. It's not making love. It's just having sex. It's
3: the other f word. <laughs> that's functional. What,
2: that's right. Functional. <laughs> they're functional. <laughs> so I guess one thing I wanted to get right in this book was. Um, how people talk about having sex. That's not making love, and that's not effing. And that's like 90% of the sex out there. I'm not an expert, but that's what I'm thinking.
4: The sex scene between Candace and Jonathan was like my entire 20s, so you did a great job. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. you did
6: a
2: fantastic job. (laughs) Thank
5: you. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Mario Smith spoke to Richard Newman and Liza Beelby of Detroit theater group, The Hinterlands. The Hinterlands performed their explosive new play, The Radicalization Project, at the Sphere this weekend in front of sold-out houses, and Richard and Liza discussed their exploration of the dark side of American counterculture. News from the service entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m.
7: So there is a—we are a part of a big, giant event uh, with the Illinois Humanities Council. Uh, I'm hugging from across the room, my friend leslie honore the beautiful leslie honore fellas y'all are really not doing this properly get her married soon (laughs) yeah please if not me it better be somebody really nice (laughs) i a i know I've, i've heard the song i know how it works um uh we are part of a Big event uh, here at Lumpin' Radio with the Illinois Humanities Council called 68 and 50. And it's taking place all over the city, actually. But we have a lot of, of really cool programming for it. And one of those things that we're doing is a play called The Radicalization Project. It's here at the Copro, And we're going to talk to two of the members of the play from the, oh, God. Oh, no, Jamie. I'm not going to ask them. I'm going to go to my research, my notes from the hinterlands. There we go. That was close. What is that? Three and four. And... We have two of the members of the uh, play here in the studio, and this is Lily. Hello, Liza. I'm oh, sorry. What did I say? Lily, tired. It's Liza. cool. And hey, what's your name, bro? Richard. Richard. Nice yeah. to meet you nice both. To you too. Nice to meet you too. So, talk to me about the radicalization project. Uh,
5: it's the radicalization process.
7: Oh, it said project on my notes. Sorry. Oh no, that's cool. Um, process is just it's even better. It's yeah. a project
5: too. <laughs>
7: it's both those things. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right.
8: So yeah, so uh, we started work on this in actually 2014. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a way of, uh, for us, researching our own histories and uh, some of the lineages that we're a part of, both as uh, artists and also as political people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and so, I mean, it started with a whole kind of range of questions and we were looking to Different uh, different radical histories in the U.S. and we ended up settling on certain groups, both in terms of radical politics and radical uh, radical art, radical theater, and um, so a lot of that had to do with some of our own uh, affinities, and also that we uh, we're a group of white artists, mm-hmm. and uh, we're like looking at some uh, pretty you know privileged white artists and looking at some of the the other groups um, that came up in similar backgrounds and some of their like similarities to us and other artists and activists that we know that are kind of in similar circles. Does that make any sense, Liza?
5: That sounds like it makes sense. Okay. <laughs>
7: when, <laughs> when, when we talk about uh, in 1968 yeah. and all of the turmoil and and whatnot that went on there, there are only a. Uh, the 3 of us in this room i know i was only one in
5: 1968
7: yeah. um i imagine you guys weren't born in 1968
5: That's true. we were not so
7: how do you this is something i've always i've never man thank you how do you look at that period of time what is not necessarily point of reference but how does that how does that information that you've garnered about 1968 how how do you reflect on that and having not been there, it's almost like watching a videotape for me anyway of uh, of, of the nineteen sixty eight riots downtown. I wasn't there, but I have a, a feeling about that. What, what yeah,
5: you, totally. How, yeah, I mean that's like the whole crux of this piece Mm -hmm. and like working on the piece. It was trying to deal with history in a way that's not just black and white photos and not just words on a page. Like how does it start to mean something? And I think there's actually a lot about embodying history and actual historical moments and things that people said and like speaking them aloud starts to take on this different kind of meaning and power and you start to understand something not as just like a concept or as something that is done. Mm. Because I don't feel like any of that stuff is done. Mm. I mean, it happened, but a lot of the people are still around and with us, um, and there's a lot of the same questions that were going on in that period are are things that we're looking at today. So, as a culture,
7: and,
8: and we also we um, we live in Detroit, and there, and I'm sure it's this way in Chicago, you know. But there's um, some of these people who are still around. It's possible to talk to them, mm-hmm. you know, and it's uh, in some ways it's like this performance and this project was a kind of excuse in some ways to have some conversations with people um, who had been a part of these movements. Um, And it was also, in in terms of our own history as theater artists, some of the groups that were um, theater groups that were also a, um, uh, a part of these same Social movements in the '60s and '70s, like the Living Theater, mm-hmm. uh, it was an excuse for us to go and, and talk to some of those people as well. You know, and uh, it's hard sometimes to <laughs> to get up that unless you have something really specific to ask. It's right. hard to just go and to someone and say, "I just want to know about this." Uh, but if it's like, "Well, we're working on this performance, and you know, your um, your group uh, you know features in this and in, in this way or that way," it, it gives you another reason to talk to someone.
7: Have we gotten that far away from that political environment, you think, from 1968 to now in 2018? Are we that far removed from that feeling then of of uh, young people feeling like they weren't being listened to and not being fairly represented? Are, have, are we anywhere near what they set out, the goal that they set out with all, these, all the protests and whatnot?
5: I mean, I don't know, because we were born in 1980, mm-hmm. so we're like... Too the old. Two of too us old were. Yeah, yeah, too old to be trusted mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, So I think like, well, on one hand, uh, I was talking to uh, Marsha Battle Philpot, Marsha Music, mm-hmm. a woman in Detroit who's an artist and activist, and she was talking about how like the moment that she didn't have to wear. A dress to school, a skirt to school, and could wear pants. Mm. It was like life changing for her, Mm. and that they couldn't. She couldn't even imagine at that point that you didn't have to wear a skirt to school. You know, like we were talking about um, some of the protests that stopped cars on the highway, Mm -hmm. and she was like, "We weren't even thinking about that. Like that wasn't even possible Mm. for us." So, but that all paved the way for where we are today. So, I think like that's the thing that's hard is that there was. Also, like thinking about the women's movement and not being able to have a credit card until like the eighties, unless it was signed under my my dad. Like, (laughs) I didn't know that that was a thing, and so I think there was a naivete for me about. What has all happened in the last 50 years?
7: Hmm. Um, We're with members of the Hinterlands. There is a wonderful play that's happening here at the CoPro. It's called The Radicalization Process. It's part of the 68 plus 50. I've said everything wrong up to this point, but (laughs) I fixed it. Um, The performances begin tomorrow night. Uh, If you want more information, you can go to Illinois. I'm sorry. You can go to um, coprosperity.org, and all of it's there. It's all there, man, like all of it because the public media institute does stuff like that um since you guys are 80s babies um Mm -hmm. seen quite a bit yourselves if you don't mind me bending your ear about donald trump Uh um (laughs) yeah i know um it's it's hard for me to look at this i remember watergate pretty well it's hard for me to look at this and not make those kind of comparisons Mm. right um but I, I i'm curious from your point of view 20 years from now right okay. 20 years from now w- it, depending on the amount of damage that has been already inflicted upon america and the world for that matter mm-hmm. what kind of conversations are we having about donald j trump are we celebrating the fact that he died in jail are we are we i mean you know what i mean yeah. I, and i'm not what trying to what if we I mean-
5: could just forget him what if <laughs> yeah. they could just be- i
8: don't i don't know i mean i think there's okay so i Part of part of the our performance that we uh, there's a, a section of it that's a newspaper mm. that the audience gets at the end actually that's from a, a vision of 1984 that never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's from a vision of 1984 where the, uh, some of these revolutionary movements uh, succeeded utterly, and uh, and it's a totally a dif- different America. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that was about us trying to reimagine the past. Uh, because you can kind of, this, this thing of hindsight being 20-20, and if, if we thought if we could reimagine the past, maybe we could reimagine the future mm-hmm. in some way, that thinking about from here, because it's really easy to look at this, to look at our situation now and say like, and think of all of the dystopian ways this could go. Um, so I wonder, you know, I wonder if this could be a catalyst. It's possible that this could be a catalyst for us to reimagine what democracy could look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to say in the United States of America, but I, I wonder how relevant uh, the United States of America is going to be in the future. Mm. So, And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that maybe it's possible that we could take this as a movement away from a certain kind of nationalism and into some other ideas. Um, different ideas about how we organize ourselves as people, as communities, that doesn't have to do always with um, an enormous, uh, overly powerful nation state. Mm. So that, that would be my hope, is that in, in 20 years, we see this moment as the, um, as the pinnacle of our excesses, and that we've been able to change and redirect. And the United States might look really different than it does right now.
7: It might. It might look different in a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> it, it, things seem to be moving really fast. So, uh, gang, everybody, the radicalization process begins tomorrow evening here at the CoPro. uh, 7.30 p.m. performance each night. Um, th- everything is running fast. The tickets are moving, so you need to get on it. Go to coprosperity.org and uh, make it happen. Thank you guys for being on the show thanks, today. Thanks, good luck with the show. Oh, thanks a thank lot. You. I'm going to try to sneak down here. Yes. Yeah. I, 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 have a, I have a job and I have to be at my job, but I will try to come down. And the 68 plus 50 is going on for the, the good part of this year. And, and, and we want folks to get involved. So make sure you go to coprosperity.org. And thank you to the folks from the Illinois Humanities Council for uh, making this happen. 50 yes. years yeah. is a long time, buddy. I know. Trust me. I, not. Fifty years is a long time, man.
5: Hey, good job. <laughs> I, yeah. I, do, I
7: drink a lot of water.
4: Size matters. Size
3: matters. Smith Kyle I just. I, it's late. You know. All right, stop the car. Oh, let me. Uh, stop right here.
4: <laughs> oh, here. Point the. Uh, All right, there it is. I'll just park right in front of the alley. In this episode, we're in the field, listening for Undertown calls and hollers. Now, is a holler like a war cry? Kinda. But we're getting closer. This is like a horror movie. Uh, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. That's a well-known Undertown holler. This particular holler is meant to call in reinforcements. I will now respond. Uh, Kyle! Trout. How are you, buddy? Trote? You all fool. <laughs> it's been some years since I seen you last. Haven't <laughs> been topside yeah, in ten it. years. This is John. My, he produces my radio segment. The name's Trote. Hey, how you doing? You're probably wondering why I got a hook for a hand. No, I... I used no, to I... juggle for money on the holsted platform. Oh. Guess what I was juggling when I lost my fingers. Oh, uh, knives? Windows. Mm. Four fully framed windows. Huh. Guess how I done it. Uh, I don't know how. No, guess again. <laughs> Your strength? Wrong again. <laughs> I was born with two sets of shoulders. Oh, yeah, I can, I can twirl my arms around in circles. <laughs> Watch this. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, It's an amazing gift, and Troat's true talent is getting kicked out of bars, am I right? <laughs> That's why I was hollering. Yeah, what was that all about, anyway? One of Ed's goons threw me out of Maria's. I was going to smash one of his car windows. Which one of these cars is his? I, uh, I, you know, I can't have that, you know. I know you for over 50 years, and you choose that over me. hold on. Now, would you like it if we had Ed break your property? I mean, it doesn't seem like, uh... You don't decide what someone does or does not do. <laughs> do you know what
9: you're talking Kyle, about?
4: <laughs> you know the rules. I answered the hollow John. I, I have to allow no. this. No, what? It's a rule of Undertown. He who responds to a holler must help the author of the holler. This is not cool. All Uh, you got to do is point. Which one of these uh, druggy buggies uh, is Ed's? See, it's not so bad. We're implicated, man. We're guilty. Kyle, be a guy and pick this up for me. Sure, that's no problem. No, no, no. Uh, Kyle, put that cinder block down. Uh, Put it down. Kyle, which one of these is Ed's? Uh, Kyle? Don't do it, Kyle. Fifty years, Just do what you know is right. Fifty years. All right, do- one sec. Hold on, John, come here.
6: What are you thinking?
4: What are you All right, doing? John, I need you to contain yourself. I need what? you to not react. I need you to just go with the flow. No. You read me? No. What are you talking about? No. Uh, it's this one. Whoa! Ah! Hit. Oh, good work, Kyle. Ah! Homie oh. likes the cold air. He's got a ski mask. <laughs> <laughs> hey, cheer <laughs> up, kid. You guys want to get kicked out of a bar with me? Let's do it. Beautiful night for a walk. Let's go. Did I ever tell you you maintain great composure?
9: You owe me a new windshield. You
4: know, I remember when this corner had a bar in it. So that happened last night. I'm not allowed in under town anymore. So it made a night of crazy drinking. Back to you, John Daly and the crew over at what's it called?
1: This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump reels from an accelerating criminal probe, New York State closes in on the Trump Organization, the National Enquirer turns state's evidence, there is silence in Russia, Senator John McCain dies, and calls for impeachment grow. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 581, August 23rd. In a chilling interview with Fox, Trump complained that flipping and cooperating with prosecutors is not fair and should be outlawed. I know all about flipping. 30, 40 years i have been watching flippers. Everything is wonderful and they get 10 years in jail and then they flip on whoever the next highest one is or as high as you can go. It almost ought to be outlawed. It's not fair. If you can say something bad about Donald Trump and you will go down to two years or three years, which is a deal he, referring to Michael Cohen, made, in all fairness to him, most people are going to do that. I've seen it many times. I have many friends. Involved in this stuff. In fact, suspects cooperating with prosecutors in exchange for a reduced sentence is a central feature of the criminal justice system. Trump is considering pardoning Paul Manafort. Trump's lawyers have warned him about pardoning anyone before Mueller's probe concludes. In related news, the state of New York is investigating indictments against Manafort and Michael Cohen. Trump has no pardon power over state sentencing. Trump attacked Jeff Sessions questioning his character for accusing himself in the Russia investigation. What kind of man is this? The only reason I gave him the job was out of loyalty. I put in an attorney general who never took control of the Justice Department. Sessions, in a rare public statement, fired back, saying the Department of Justice would not be, quote, improperly influenced by political considerations. Trump also claimed the stock market would crash and that everybody would be very poor if he was impeached. I don't know how you can impeach somebody who has done a great job. Congressman Lindsey Graham and Chuck Grassley say Trump may fire Sessions and that they could open the Senate schedule for a confirmation hearing. That would allow a new attorney general to fire Robert Mueller. Sessions, of course, has recused himself from that investigation. And Betsy DeVos is seeking to allow school districts to use federal funding to buy guns for teachers. The plan would reverse a longstanding position that federal funding should not be used to outfit schools with weapons. However, DeVos' brother is the mercenary outfit Blackwater head, Eric Prince day 582, August 24th, in a highly unusual deal, the National Enquirer head, David Pecker, was granted immunity by federal prosecutors for providing information about Michael Cohen and Trump. Pecker, who is the publisher of AIM, which publishes the National Enquirer, met with prosecutors, and Pecker and his chief content officer corroborated Michael Cohen's account that implicated Trump in a federal crime. The National Enquirer kept us safe with documents about hush money payments and the stories they killed as a part of the relationship with Trump and Cohen. Dylan Howard removed those documents from a safe in the weeks before Trump's inauguration. It is unclear if those documents still exist. It is highly unusual that the National Enquirer is cooperating with prosecutors. Mueller reportedly told them he would treat them as a campaign organ instead of a First Amendment-protected news outlet due to that relationship. Also the chief financial officer of the Trump Organization was given immunity by federal prosecutors. Alan Weisselberg authorized nearly $500,000 in reimbursements to Michael Cohen. He was granted immunity last month in exchange for testimony. Weisselberg reimbursed Cohen for his $130,000 payment to Stormy Daniels, as well as another additional $50,000 for text services. As a result, the Manhattan District Attorney is considering criminal charges against the Trump Organization. The Trump Organization violated New York State tax law by listing Cohen's reimbursement as a legal expense. Federal prosecutors said the payments were based on sham legal invoices and that Cohen did no legal work in connection with the matter. In an attempt to distract from his terrible week, Trump asked Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to study, quote, the seizing of land from white farmers and the large-scale killing of farmers in South Africa. The man came in a tweet after a racist segment aired on Fox News' Tucker Carlson show. South Africa responded strongly, accusing Trump of sowing division. In related news, Melania, Trump is traveling to Africa by herself. Day 583, August 25th. Trump canceled Mike Pompeo's planned trip to North Korea, citing a lack of progress on denuclearization. Trump blamed that lack of progress on China, which he claimed was not helping with the process as they once were. The White House blocked a Senate Rules Committee vote on a bipartisan bill to protect the elections from cyber threats. That vote was unexpectedly canceled with the Trump administration saying it would not support legislation that moves power or funding from the states to Washington for the planning and operation of elections. And CIA informants close to the Kremlin have gone largely silent ahead of November's midterms. Officials said the expulsion of American intelligence officers from Moscow on the outing of an FBI informant by Trump has had a chilling effect on in intelligence collection. Vladimir Putin has also said he's intent on killing foreign spies. Day 584, August 26th, Senator John McCain has died. A twice-filled candidate for President McCain has been blamed for the coarsening of our democracy with his choice of Sarah Palin as running mate. However, late in life he served as a powerful antagonist to Trump, preserving Obamacare in a dramatic vote. George W. Bush and Barack Obama have been asked to offer eulogies at his funeral. Vice President Mike Pence may attend. Trump was conspicuously not invited. Trump met with a leading QAnon conspiracy theorist in the Oval Office. Michael LeBron, who goes by Lionel, has fueled the QAnon counter-narrative, which alleges, among other things, that Trump is working with Robert Mueller to unearth a child trafficking ring run by Democrats. LeBron posted photos of himself in the Oval Office. Trump also revived the idea of firing Jeff Sessions. Trump's attorneys have pushed back forcefully against that move, noting it could be construed as obstruction of justice. Day 585, August 27th. A little notice court case stemming from the apparent murder of a Columbia University professor 60 years ago is worrying observers of the Mueller investigation. The sleeper case, known as McKeever v. USA, has seen Jeff Sessions' Justice Department argue that judges don't have inherent authority to release information heard by grand juries unless it falls under exemptions approved by Congress. If a Federal Appeals Court agrees that could keep special counsel Robert Mueller from publishing any information about the Trump campaign in Russia that he obtains through a Washington grand jury. In stark contrast to all other presidents, Trump shared his condolences for McCain's family in a Saturday evening tweet. He overruled aides who wanted a longer presidential statement. Instead, he sent a tweet and then returned to a weekend playing golf and tweeting about Hillary Clinton. Trump declined to mention McCain's legacy of military service or his leadership in the Senate. Day 586, August 28th. The White House raised the United States flag to full staff on Monday, less than two days after the death of John McCain. The Trump administration did not respond to questions asking if the president would issue a flag proclamation to honor McCain. The veterans group vote vets criticized Trump saying, quote, Donald Trump refuses to lower flag for McCain. As we said yesterday, Donald Trump was a pathetic, thin-skinned, self-centered, low-class, petty coward. The USA and Mexico reached an agreement to revise key portions of NAFTA. Trump said the countries would be entering into a new trade deal called the United States Mexico trade agreement. He wanted to get rid of the name of NAFTA, which he said sounded bad. The agreement with Mexico gives Trump a significant win in a trade war he has started with countries around the globe, but it falls short of actually revising NAFTA and the preliminary agreement excludes Canada. The federal official in charge of protecting student borrowers from predatory lending practices suddenly resigned. Seth Rodman said the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, under Mick Mulvaney, had, quote, turned its back on young people and their financial futures to favor the most powerful financial institutions instead. And a federal judge struck down Trump's executive orders limiting the power of federal employee unions. Trump had signed three orders which had made it easier for managers to fire federal employees. In a withering opinion, the judge said that Trump, quote, cannot eviscerate the right to bargain collectively. The collective bargaining process is not a cutthroat death match. Day 587, August 29th, Trump finally issued a proclamation of praise for John McCain on Monday afternoon, two days after the senator's death. Under enormous public and private pressure, Trump made a terse statement and ordered the flag to be flown at half-staff in the only place it wasn't already, above the White House. A report on Hurricane Maria in Frederico has found that nearly 3,000 more deaths than expected occurred in the months after the storm. The official death count had been listed by the Trump administration at just 64. The new analysis makes Hurricane Maria one of the deadliest ever in the United States. Trump accused Google of being rigged against him. Trump charges that Google is limiting fair media coverage about him and suppressing voices of conservatives, declaring it a very serious situation. Larry Kudlow, the director of the National Economic Council, added that the Trump administration is taking a look at whether Google should be regulated. Trump apparently is upset that the search results for Trump news show mostly bad coverage about him from the so-called fake news media. That tirade followed a segment on the Lou Dom show that incorrectly claimed that 96% of Google search results for Trump news are from liberal media outlets. The author of that piece admitted the data was not scientific. Canada's foreign minister has flown to the United States to discuss NAFTA after Trump threatened her country with punitive tariffs. The visit comes a day after the United States and Mexico agreed to a new deal. Canada, the third member of NAFTA, is yet to say whether it will join the revised agreement. Trump has threatened to tax Canada's auto sector or cut it out entirely if a new deal is not reached by Friday. And the Democratic National Committee's headquarters were evacuated following a bomb threat. The DNC is currently working with the FBI in the threat. There is no word that the DNC will be able to return to that building. Day 588, August 30th. Federal judges again throughout North Carolina's congressional district maps as an unconstitutional gerrymander. New maps may now have to be drawn before the midterm elections. North Carolina legislators are likely to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to hear that case. Trump urged evangelical ministers to campaign for Republicans from the pulpit, illegally saying that, quote, we're one election away from losing everything. Democrats will overturn everything we've done and they'll do it quickly and violently and violently. There's violence. Trump claimed he had gotten rid of a law prohibiting churches and charitable organizations from endorsing political candidates. That is simply not true. New York City's Department of Buildings cited the Kushner companies for 42 violations and fined them nearly a quarter of a million dollars for illegally attempting to remove rent-controlled tenants. Also, an investment group led by Michael Cohen falsified construction permits by claiming that three buildings in Manhattan were vacant or had no rent-controlled tenants. They did. And remember that Trump made the explosive and unprecedented threat to revoke former CIA head John Brennan's security clearance? In the 13 days since, Brennan has not heard anything from the White House or the CIA and has received no formal notification that his clearance has actually been pulled. Apparently, Brennan they still have his security clearance. 44% of Americans now believe Congress should start impeachment proceedings. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Melanie Adcock chatted with Jonathan Freeman about graphs and data. A dry, boring subject? Absolutely not. Freeman dishes on what grocery lists tell analysts about eating habits, how fraud is detected, and how graphs are actually everywhere these days. Texting Chicago
9: airs every Friday at 1 p.m. Now, now what what is a graph database, and and what makes you so into them?
3: Well, um, I guess to To think about a graph database, we we should probably step back one level and talk about what a graph is. uh, Because a graph database is a thing that uh, stores graphs. Mm -hmm. Um, So a a graph is a, uh, I guess it it originated around the, or at least the the formal concept, um, the naming of the thing um, happened in the 18th century by a Swiss mathematician named Leonard Euler. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was in Prussia, he was in Königsberg. Um, And he started looking at this problem, um, which we'll talk about a a little bit later. But um, essentially, he started representing things in the physical world in sort of a conceptual way. Um, And you can sort of think of it like a a family tree where um, each member of a family you would maybe call a node or a vertex. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the relationships between them you would either call a relationship uh, or an edge. Um, and the idea of representing things in our, our physical world or our conceptual world as nodes uh, and relationships is sort of the idea of a graph. Um, so all a graph database does is take that sort of conceptual representation um, and make it fast to, to traverse and look, look into.
9: Hmm. And, uh, and, and so um, uh, that's that sounds cool. It's. I think I can understand why you'd be into all of that. That sounds very interesting. And now, now how are graph databases used in social and spatial data sets? And, and for our listeners um, out there who aren't that much into tech, um, can you tell us what a data set is?
3: Yeah, that's a good place to start. Um, so all a data set is is a collection of information that sort of has something to do with uh. uh like the, the everything in the collection is sort of related, so oh, wow. one data might uh, one data set might be the location of all of the bike racks in the city of Chicago, which mm-hmm. is a data set you can find. Um, another data set might be um, uh, somebody's purchasing information. So if you have an Amazon account, there's mm-hmm. a data set um, that you know nobody except for people internal to Amazon can see um, that has sort of your purchase history, um, and so it can, it's a, it's a pretty flexible term, but, um, but it usually has, it usually means that 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 information has been formalized in some way um, and you can kind of get at, get at it in a uniform way. So if you wanted to see um, the bike racks in Chicago, for example, all of them will have um, like a latitude and longitude coordinate and maybe a street address. Mm-hmm. Um, and every single bike rack will have that. So it makes it easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way you might use that data set in like social or spatial um, uh, fields On the social side, uh, we talked a little bit about the idea of a family tree already, Mm -hmm. Um, but there are also connections between people and other connections other than like filial relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, You have um, like friends, you have admirers, Um, anything that you see in like social networks, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Mm-hmm. You can um, you can follow people, you can like um, uh, groups or organizations, um, and all of this can sort of be represented um, in n- nodes and relationships, and, and you can sort of see patterns in that. You can see, well, oh, you liked these three things, you might also like this fourth thing that's sort of similar to them.
9: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and then, yeah. in terms of spatial data sets, that's actually one of the, that's the s- sort of the reason graphs um, were discovered um, uh, Leonard Euler was in, in Prussia, in Königsberg, Prussia. There is a river, a river that goes through called the River Pregel. Um, mm-hmm. And it separates two main bodies of land. And, and, and in between them, in two places, there are these little islands. Well, some, one of them is kind of big. Um, so you have these four bodies of land, and then there's bridges that co- go across. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's seven bridges. And his question was, can I devise a plan to walk through the city that will get me across each bridge once and only once, uh, which means that that he has to figure out a way to kind of get through it so he doesn't end up on an island and he's already crossed all the bridges but there's another bridge somewhere else mm-hmm. that, he, that he has to cross. Um, and so the way he went about representing this he sort of took the information about how big the land masses are or where the bridges was were th- those didn't really matter as much, and so he kind of started paring things down until you get like a node and a relationship, uh, and that's sort of um, one of the ways that you can uh, represent spatial
9: data. That is so interesting. Now, now gra- uh, gra- graphs are considered uh, no SQL tech. Can you explain what that is or what that isn't <laughs> for us?
3: Yeah, I can I can try. There's there's been some evolution of this um over the last ten or fifteen years. Um the um the whole no SQL or NoSQL um you'll you kinda have to start it's it's with what SQL is. Um and SQL is uh structured query language. It's um it's sort of synonymous with a, a database that's been in, um, common use since it was invented in the seventies or eighties. Um, think of it like, uh, an itemized receipt at like a grocery store. Mm-hmm. You have a bunch of different lines and on each line you have a little bit of information. You might have two pieces of information, like the, the name of the item and the price. Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, in most relational databases, this is how things are, um, are represented. Um, and so you might have uh, a line for you know, each item in your, that you purchased in your, in your shopping cart. Mm-hmm. And you might have, so that that's, would be in a table or like, you know, think about it like a, a spreadsheet or something like that. Um, and then you might have another uh, table that has maybe the name of the item and where it came from. Like, or where it is in um, in the warehouse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with those two pieces of information, you can kind of fit them together because they have this a similar field. So you mm-hmm. can go from the price to the name of the item, the name of the item to the location in the warehouse, and you can kind of make these jumps. Um, oh, that's
9: interesting. So, like, a data set could be, like... Um, all of the people who shop at the same grocery store and buy a certain kind of apple or pear or something, maybe.
3: For sure, yeah. And that would be, that would commonly be like, you know, slicing down a larger data set and you like filter in on what you're actually interested in.
9: Yeah. And it, you could even have a data set on the number of people who make fruit salad with it when they get home.
3: Yep, absolutely. <laughs> uh, it would be a little, you would have to volunteer to get that information, but um, then you can target them with ads.
5: <laughs> save your soul nobody's gonna save it for you don't lose control to your pride and paranoia name your price stop running from the afternoon and take a. Tomorrow is a dusty room Over
9: white, white noise I can find my voice Over white,
0: white noise This is Hell, spoke to Corey Payne, author of Live, Work, 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 Die, an expose of Silicon Valley's startup culture. Payne discusses how programmers' entire lives are managed by their employers, the consequences of tech world hubris on our society, and how much vaporware really is out there. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m.
6: Investigative reporter Corey Pine is author of Live, Work, 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 Die A Journey into the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley. Welcome to This is Hell, Corey. Hey, thanks for having me, Chuck. Find out more about the book at liveworkworkworkdie.com. I'm really surprised that URL was available. I thought for sure somebody would have taken that before you got to it, Corey. Uh, Well, if I'd had one extra work or one fewer, then, uh, you know, I was looking at
10: $1,000 for the domain. So I snapped it right
6: up. You start by uh, quoting 20th century philosopher and sociologist uh, Jacques Ellul, writing in 1954 as the Technological Society. Modern man never asks himself what he will have to pay for his power. This is the question we ought to be asking why don't we ever ask what we should have to pay for the power we have acquired? Why why do we think power or anything is free of cost, especially when it comes to the cost to the environment and to our happiness? What, why don't we consider the potential negative impact of any of our disruptions since industrialization?
10: Uh, well, that's an interesting question that I don't get into that much in the book. My personal uh, guest and it's nothing more than a guess would be that because it's because we're just monkeys with less hair and slightly bigger brains. And we can now order pizza on a app on our phone uh, with a push of a button. So um, questioning is sort of a higher level activity that's not really encouraged by our <clears throat> our capitalist society. Okay. Uh, questioning why, you know, how do you make money questioning why whether this all makes sense <laughs> to live this way?
6: So, do you think that we are less capable today of inquiry than we were in the past, possibly due to the technologies that we use? Well,
10: you know, I I picked uh, Jacques Ellul for a reason, and he he's best known uh, for the epigraph, you know, and he he's best known for two books. Um, one is uh, called Propaganda: uh, The Formation of Men's Attitudes, and another is uh, called The Technological Society, uh, and both very much informed uh, my. Uh, perspective when I wrote this book, which I, I should point out for your listeners, is a much more lively and engaging read than the work of a uh, mid twentieth century uh, French uh, f- philosopher. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this this one's a little bit breezier of a read. I, I would just like to say. Uh, anyway, Alul um pointed out that uh, you know one of the um, most powerful aspects of propaganda is its frequency. Um, in other words, you know, the, the content of the message, um, isn't necessarily as important as the fact that you're always receiving a message. And, um, I would say that our, our digital, uh, milieu, uh, does make us less capable of inquiry because we're constantly distracted. You know, it's like, he, was complaining back in the sixties about, uh, how, how Difficult it was to keep up with all these newspaper headlines every day. There was just more headlines, and it was uh, it was bewildering. And then you added radio on top of that, and oh my God, how could a, how could a human possibly maintain their sanctity of mind? Uh, and and look at us today. I mean, it's. I don't even have to finish the sentence, really.
6: (laughs) You don't. Uh, You mentioned how in 2010 you quit your newspaper job and launched your first startup after you called a, or what you called a uh, niche news website. You write that after two years working 12-hour days as publisher, developer, editor, and reporter, the startup had failed. Thus, I had failed. What other explanation could there be? As everyone knew, the internet was a level playing field, a free and frictionless medium for exchange where the best ideas would inevitably rise to the top. Such was the foundation Rhetoric of the internet, repeated like scripture Questioned only by cranks and cynics It was also a load of crap Though I didn't yet recognize it as such But that is how the internet Is supposed to work So what happens when a foundational Technology of the economy does not Provide a level playing field A free frictionless medium for exchange Where the best ideas inevitably rise to the top What happens when our economy Is not only unfair But not a meritocracy
10: Well you get Uh, grotesque uh, displays like we've seen uh, recently with with Jeff Bezos uh, surpassing Bill Gates to become the world's richest man, Uh, you know, personally worth a hundred billion dollars while his workers, especially warehouse workers, uh, are are reduced to uh, sub, uh, you know, uh, I would not sub, but pre uh, pre pre-war uh, conditions in terms of their, their labor and their day to day and their, their income. I mean, it's, it's Gilded Age stuff. Uh, so when you get a technology that is essentially designed to funnel wealth upward, uh, it will have the, uh, incredible effect of funneling wealth upward. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on in Chicago, but you know, I live in Portland and, um, uh, some of the, some of what's happened in San Francisco is certainly happening here, uh, same as Seattle, and and uh, it, it's uh, it's becoming a city of uh, empty condo towers and uh, and rickshaw drivers. I mean, it, literally, uh, Silicon Valley is turning us into a society of rickshaw drivers. I, I, I was down in what used to be a thriving uh, old town uh, Chinatown area, and um, now it's like there's these. And uh, beautiful old buildings has been taken over by a co-working space, and, and nobody seems to come or go except for people that are delivering uh, takeout.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com.